episode 9 of Strange Brow Radio. I'm your host, Tobe Johnson, and it is a post-St. Patrick's Day show. Yes, I will definitely not oblige you with an Irish accent here, but I will say happy Milky Mustache, Milky Guinness Mustache, (laughs) post-St. Patrick's Day to each one of you. Okay, today's guest, Neil Waters and Alex Evans, and the subject matter, the thylacine, also known as the Tasmanian tiger. It shouldn't exist, but it does. There's incredible proof, and we're going to go over it. So, if you want to learn about the most amazing marsupial I've ever seen, this is the show for you. Also, I want to thank... Our sponsor, Feral by Aaron at Etsy.com. Check out her stuff. Selling like crazy lately. E-R-Y-N, Feral by Aaron at the Etsy shop. Okay. Don't you move a muscle. We'll be right back. saying Neil Waters witness to the Tasmanian tiger the most amazing marsupial that I've ever seen and Alex Evans crypto artist making amazing contributions to Neil's group the thylacine awareness group of Australia and if you go on to that website and go on YouTube you'll see what I mean you can also learn more about Alex's work on her own Etsy shop and we'll tell you more about how to do that but she is a very capable woman making incredible renditions of an amazing amazing animal I would call it a cryptid maybe that's not fair it seems to be something uh, very in the cryptid realm you just hold on to your hats here we're gonna be talking about what we're looking for the thylacine and to do that well who better than our guests let's join them now so today we're here with neil waters and alex evans neil is a thylacine witness and a part of the thylacine awareness group of australia it's a pleasure to have him there guys you can hear me loud and clear it's uh it's great to have you on uh, strange brow and Gosh, first of all, Neil, I want to know what you do for a living outside of, you know, raise awareness regarding the thylacine. What exactly do you do in uh, in Australia? I'm a gardener, actually. Okay, so you're a landscaper. No, not really a landscaper, more okay. of a maintenance gardener. Okay. So I'm a horticulturalist, but I'm, I'm the head gardener at a large um, public garden, which was previously a residence of some rather wealthy people and they never had children so they bequeathed it to the state when they passed away and it's got like a a 1930s massive mansion on it which is like a castle Mm -hmm. Um, and we have 100 acres of of property surrounding it so it's a complete estate Um, has 60 acres of bushland up the back on the foothills and then there's about 40 acres of garden and three staff to look after it so it's it's a pretty intense job that is intense job and then 
Alex Evans is an artist and she's also a cryptid artist at that. Um, I worked with Alex on a project before in 2018, but you know, mostly Alex and I know um, some of the same people in another cryptid world outside of the thylacine. Alex, how are you doing? I'm fine, Tom. How are you? Good. And Alex, uh, what do you do for a living out there? And, and where are you at exactly? Uh, I'm in Indiana. Okay. Uh, and I used to work. I don't work now. I'm a retired person. Okay. Uh, but I used to work. And this is so funny because Neil and I almost share a birthday. And I took care of tropical plants. That was my job. So we're kind of and then we've got this thylacine thing going. So yeah, we're, uh, we're, we like, uh, we like the natural world. Kindred spirits. Yeah. Yep. Kindred spirits. And of course I, uh, do the podcast, but mainly I work for Uber and Lyft and that gives me the opportunity to kind of pick my schedule and chase after cryptids and edit together video and audio. So, um, we all have time here to discuss this. All right, so my first question here to Neil is, I wanna know uh, more about your sighting and if you could tell us in great detail about what happened on that fateful day and how it changed your life. Well, I, I relocated to Tasmania in 2010. Um, it was time for a bit of a shift. So I moved to a remote area called South Mount Cameron in the northeast of Tasmania. There's only about 11 houses in the entire town. And we don't even have a street light. So there's not much out there. Um, it's an old tin mining area that has regenerated bushland over it. So it's not original forest, but the regrowth is, you know, 60, 80 years old, something like that. So it's, it's nice country. Um, adjacent to my property there is... Um, the Mount Cameron Regional Reserve. So I was walking my dog over there one day, uh, probably about an hour before dark. And the main track going in towards the, the big lake over there, uh, probably about a kilometre long and I'm about halfway along this track. And my dog takes off chasing a wallaby as dogs like to do. Um, and I'm yelling out to my dog to come back and she's totally ignored me yeah, i just lost video oh you lost video but we have video can you hear okay what's going on here it keeps jumping off you know if you turn the mouse upside down that might fix it um <laughs> so um yeah i'm calling out to my dog she's not coming something's going on here i'm gonna have to unplug my mouse i think Okay, you shouldn't, yeah, you shouldn't need a mouse, but if you do later, we can plug it back in. What the hell? I keep losing video. Okay. Hang on, yeah. you're there, but it keeps reducing. I don't know. Anyway. Are you, are you away from your Wi-Fi connection? Uh, no, no, okay. I'm, I'm too close. Anyway, so... Um, the dog takes off. I'm calling out to the dog and it's rather thick sort of um, tea tree banks here, sort of bushland there with small eucalypts. Um, and I'm walking along and I can hear this as I'm walking, I can hear this crunch, crunch, crunch in the bush, probably only 
50 meters, not so probably only about 15 meters in from where I am. And I'm sort of thinking something's following me, something's stalking me here and it's a little bit spooky and I'm, the hair on the back of my neck starting to stand up a bit. I keep walking, walking, come around a bend. Every time I stop, it stops. So I know I'm being stalked by something and it was starting to really give me the creeps a bit. So um, come around a bend and it was a bit of a clearing there. So I was sort of standing oh, maybe 15, 20 metres away from where this noise was coming through. And then I saw an animal come out and it sat behind a clump of grass. So it was sitting on its hind quarters. So I knew it was either a dog or, or something that was a quadruped wasn't a wallaby or a kangaroo you could sort of see the shape and the outline of it and the top of its ears um so then i tried to get closer so i was really slowly creeping up towards it step by step and i got probably 10 to 15 meters away from it and then it decided it was going to hightail it out of there as it took off i saw the side of the animal because of the lighting and the time of day i can't say i saw stripes definitively but i definitely saw the long stiff tail and it was a it was a chocolatey brownie reddy sort of color it was a, it was a rather dark color um but it was a thylacine essentially um from all i knew about thylacines at the time so this inspired me to um, find out quite a bit more about thylacines and that sort of got me started initially i had a second sighting and when i had that sighting was about four years later um, but the second sighting, it basically walked straight past my house at night. Uh, it was a smaller animal, but I quite clearly saw it and the stripes um, as it just trotted past my house. I'd opened up the, um, the uh, French windows on my bedroom because even though it was summer, it was still cold and I had the fire going in the lounge room, but it was starting to get a bit overbearing. So I opened up the, the uh, bedroom windows for some fresh air to come in. When I opened up the windows, I was just standing there looking out in the moonlight. It was quite well lit. And I just seen this animal come walking past. So it was um, quite a moment of, uh, oh my God. <laughs> so that second sighting was in January, 2014. And that inspired me to then have a look into this whole thylacine thing a lot more and um, get involved, I suppose, get motivated to actually find out more um in a much more intense way i guess and then neil you said that the coloration of it was kind of a a khaki color or a chocolatey khaki color is that right yeah it was more of a reddy browny chocolatey sort of color mm -hmm. i always thought that thylacines were formed with black stripes but i've since been to uh, the south australian museum and had a look at the pelts that they have in the collection from the animals that came from the Adelaide Zoo in South Australia. And I found a pelt exactly the same color as the one that I saw with the initial sighting. But there's also gray ones in there as well. They've got gray ones with a tinge of black to them. Um, and from the sightings that I've collected, I've heard of black ones with white stripes, ones with no stripes at all. Um, and someone has even suggested to me that there was white ones out there as well. So who knows? There's no exact rule though. There's a lot of very variance in, in the colors of the species as far as I'm aware. 
Right. And the, uh, if a white one existed, would that be a, a sign that it's an albino or would they just come in a variety like a canine would? Well, I've, it's interesting you should say that. We do have alpine areas in Australia. Um, and I have met some people with purebred alpine dingoes. Now, dingoes are generally a color very similar to Alex's hair, actually. Um, sort of a gingery red sort of color. Um, but these alpine dingoes were very pale, like very pale. There, there wasn't a lot of red in their coat. There, were, there was more white in their coat than there was red. So it may be an adaptation for um, environment, for coloration and hiding, like you have an alpine fox, um, which is quite white compared to a red fox from other parts of the world. So I'm, because there's not really a lot of factual information that was done by scientists back in the day before thylacines became rare everything's up for speculation so i don't really know but i've, I've got a few theories i suppose and alex uh, as far as the work that you're doing you make little figurines would would we call what you make figurines or yep. replicas yep, that's it little thylacine figurines and oh, you're thylacine. doing a variety of colors on these as well you're not just shooting for the fawn and black Color. Right. So, right. You had, do you I, have an example handy to show the camera? Yes, I've got a. Um, this is a female that I modeled, and she is more the typical, you know, fawn color, and then um, the stripes. Yeah, the remarkable detail. Don't don't skimp on that. Show people that that is amazing. So tell the audience what they're looking at. They're looking at um, the pouch. Mm -hmm. um, the female has a backward facing pouch as opposed to like a kangaroo that has a frontward facing pouch. Mm -hmm. And the joey, you can see the tiny little stripes of a joey in there. And then the uh, the back haunches too, as far as oh. the, uh, the pads are concerned there, they go up the ankle there. And right. before Neil hopped on, you and I had a chance to catch up there and maybe Neil can mm -hmm. speak to this a little bit more. As far as the pads are concerned, Neil, coming up the back of the feet there with the rigid tail, would that be utilized for balancing as far as using the tail as a rudder and that's where the, the haunches would come from or the um, the padding on the, the feet? Yeah, they, they can stand up on their, their rear feet. It's called a hop. So they can actually stand up on their rear feet and um, propel themselves like a kangaroo. Many of the sightings that I've gathered um, from people out and about in the bush, whether they're hunters or bushwalkers or what have you, they describe that they saw the animal standing up on its rear feet. And they thought it was a kangaroo at first, but with a really big bull's head. Quite often when they're witnessed standing on their rear feet and upright like a roo, they are noticed to be sniffing the air. So I think they do that quite often when they're trying to find each other or work out what is that strange smell um, in my area, which is probably the humans that are, that are there at the time. Um, and they know that they've been sort of sussed out. So they, they, um, they get a move on pretty quick. They're, they're often described as when they're startled and people sight them, that they'll do their initial escape will be um bouncing like a kangaroo for three or four hops they get a bit of speed up then they go down on all four and off they go well, very you're right what else besides a kangaroo would do that 
Well, there's nothing else that looks like a kangaroo that, that would do that. That's correct. So um, it's it's pretty unique sort of set of circumstances when people witness that. It's, well, it's that, really... that totally leaves out the little squirrel-like mombat, which probably has none of these attributes. Uh, the numbat. Numbat. Yeah, numbats are only found in Western Australia now due to predation by foxes and cats. Um, they and land degradation as well with farming and clearing. Um, but they used to be found right across Australia. They have been re-released in the eastern states mm -hmm. in um, fenced off reserves where feral animals can't get at them, where mm -hmm. they're safe for predation and they're doing really well in those reserves. Um, but yeah, numbats are quite tiny. They're probably as big as a squirrel, not much bigger. Um, and you know, apart from the stripes on their rump, they have really no resemblance to a thylacine, even though they are actually the most closely related living relative. Okay. Uh, Alex, can you show uh, some more of your figurines here to the camera? Because the attributes of the back hind quarter there show what I would think is the adaptation for this thing to stand up and right. you know, stand yes. vertically on its hind yeah. legs there. Can you, can, you, can you see that? Yeah, and I'm interested too in the and the profile of it too, where you can see the musculature and how the back kind of slopes forward, like you would kind of think of something that wants to oh. back and use its back head quarter. Right. <laughs> it's making Neil sneeze. <laughs> <laughs> well, it happened. And I have a Joey, uh, a Joey that I finished up the stripes on, and this is a, a small little guy that uh yeah he's you know with the with the mother uh set that i have but uh yeah there's uh they're quite they're quite interesting and i wanted to get them correct i didn't want to just make like a dog with stripes or whatever i wanted to make i wanted to learn about them and that's how i joined the thylacine awareness group to find out more and they have tons of information and 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 people come on who have who have seen them and tell their stories and that to me is um so compelling well let's take a look at some of your work here alex i'm going to go ahead and share the screen here with everybody and we'll go to alex's portfolio and tell me if uh, you guys can see this okay yeah i can see that okay let me just bring up Alex's stuff here on a PowerPoint that I had laid out. Okay, and we can see this okay? Yep, I can about, see it. Now, now you can see that as well? Yes. Okay, great. So, um, you know, as far as confusing these with a canine, I just, I, I can see maybe at a glance how that might happen just based upon the muzzle and it's on four legs and it has upper ears and it has probably short hair like a you would expect off of a canine or a dingo. But when it comes to characteristics like the back haunches here, which I don't know if you can, I can't get my mouse to work, but just the uh, formation of how the back area is so musculature, it looks a lot like characteristics you would see off a kangaroo. Am I wrong about that, Neil? No, you're spot on, mate. It's a marsupial. So yeah. they're not hugely apart when it comes to the relations as far as their evolution goes. Um, it's not a macropod like a kangaroo, it's in a different order because it's a carnivore, but they are very similar. 
These are all beautiful pieces that you did, Alex, here, and you have a variety of people to choose from. And again, if people are interested in purchasing Alex's thylacine replicas here, figurines, um, you can go to this website in particular here. It's on Etsy. There's also a thylacine uh, group awareness from Australia t-shirt available on, on Etsy. And um, I'll put the link actually in the show notes if anybody's interested in going directly. Oh, there it is right there. Let me get out of this and you can show the camera. Show them again what you just showed me. Okay, so that shirt's available for purchase? Yeah, that one and there's about half a dozen other designs as well. Okay, and again, a percentage of Alex's hard work goes directly to uh, the foundation. And let's see, how many members are part of the Thylacine Awareness Group? Um, just over 7,200. Wow. So it's been slowly building up. When, when we released our first video in 2016, uh, we had 304 members and it went from 304 to 6,000 in about a month. The first week, I think I added about 3,000 people to the group. It was just absolute chaos. Now, where do you right. think that came from? That spike? Um, well, worldwide attention to the subject matter, basically, because when we um, launched our first video, we actually managed to pick up an email list of every TV station, newspaper, and radio station in Australia. So we emailed this link to our uh, YouTube clip to something like 1,400 email addresses. And then we sort of sat back and waited to see what happened. And the next day um, at 6 a.m., I was doing a, a radio interview. And I think within that week, I'd done about six radio interviews five press releases and so on and so on. And it's pretty much been crazy ever since. Okay, so let me ask you about the pop culture element of this, because I know William Defoe was in a movie regarding the thylacine. And although it was kind of under-reviewed and maybe even underappreciated, because it seemed like a pretty well-done movie on the subject matter, I think it was called The Hunter. Have you seen this show? Yeah, I have. Yeah, I went and saw it when it came out of the cinema. Okay. So it was kind of what you would call an indie movie, but it had a lot of uh, deeper undertones to it about man's mortality, hunting something extinct. And I won't give away the ending of the movie, but uh, just your overall opinion of that, sh of that movie, if people want to check it out. I really um, liked the fact that there wasn't a terrible lot of dialogue in the movie. It was very much about the scenery in Tasmania, which is you know, one of the most beautiful places in Australia. Mm -hmm. as far as wilderness goes, untouched wilderness. Um, and the fact that, you know, without giving away the end of the, uh, the story, um, his moral dilemma with what he was hired to do um, was a real tough one for, for any hunter, I think. Uh, a lot of hunters are really good conservationists, so they've got a, a good attitude about their, their foe that they're after, and he certainly had the right attitude in the end. Um, so... Yeah, I, I thought it was good because it didn't have a terrible lot of hype. It wasn't overly done with CGI. There wasn't thylacines running around every five minutes in it. And it, that, that kept you on the edge of your seat all the way through it pretty well, waiting for that moment when you finally get to see this thing. So, yeah, it, it, I thought it was good. I enjoyed it. Have you seen this, Alex? I, I've only seen the clips of it, which, of course, um, seeing 
um, a thylacine moving was, you know, besides the, the real movie clips um, that, that they've had in the, from the past, from the zoos, um, I thought they did a really great job reproducing the, the mm -hmm. thylacine figure in the movie. And of course, as an artist, I was like intrigued by that, but I'd like to see the movie actually. Yeah, definitely check it out. It's especially if you're a William Defoe fan because he has so much, you know, moodiness just with his face alone. He can really move a picture along. But the CGI work that they did on presenting the thylacine was wasn't too shabby. But uh, I mean, Alex, you're adding to the pop culture idea of this here by kind of releasing, you know, a figurine. And a lot of times you find figurines like this in toy stores or gift shops. Um, that's something that I'd like to see happen. Would you be interested in if you were approached by, you know, uh, you know, bringing a thylacine character out, would you? Especially in the States now, right. you know, we don't, we don't, we, we concentrate on, you know, dinosaur figures and other types of figures, but, um, cryptids, not so much. And mm -hmm. especially, uh, thylacine figures, you really have to order them you know, not, not around here. We don't have them. So yeah, that might be something we should get going. <laughs> well, I just add in Tasmania, when you go down there and you go to the markets and the souvenir shops, thylacines have just about fallen off the radar. And there's a very obvious push for Tasmanian devils to be the popular icon of Tasmania that people take home with them. Um, when you do find thylacine figurines in a lot of those shops, sometimes they're that poorly made that they literally are a dingo with stripes painted on them. Um, no offence to our Chinese friends because, you know, they do some good stuff, but they're basically all made in China and they're all crap and they literally fall apart. <laughs> so um, some of the stuffed toys are okay, but to have a high quality, detailed, hand-made, hand-painted, um, icon of a thylacine produced, you know, with painstaking uh, effort that, that, that um, Alex puts into her figurines is a, is a breath of fresh air. Yeah, well, if Mattel, if you're listening, you can get a hold of me and I will push you right through to Alex Evans or you can just find her directly. Something needs to happen in that direction, especially for the Tasmanian tourist industry. Uh, that would be an excellent thing to see at all the airports out there. For sure. I was going to ask you too, as far as looking at a bounty on these creatures, which uh, is kind of the premise of the hunter with William Defoe, uh, there was over a million dollars back in 2008, up to 2008, I believe, offered by uh, a magazine called The Bulletin. Do you know anything about this million dollar bounty? And of course, it had to be brought, brought to the the magazine alive and unhurt yeah well almost impossible to do because in tasmania it's illegal to trap a thylacine um so it's a little bit of an oxymoron to say that you have to trap it and bring it to them unhurt when you're totally breaking the law doing that you'd need the million dollars for the get out of jail card <laughs> <laughs> isn't that crazy yeah, yeah. no so nobody, nobody uh, even attempted it because of the laws? Oh, look, I, I wouldn't say that. I'm sure there's plenty of people out there that had, had thought that they might be able to track it. 
Um, I think it was Ted Turner that put the money up from memory. Um, I know he was involved a long time ago, whether that was the same bounty offering, I'm not entirely sure. Um, but yeah, as far as I'm aware, nobody got close to claiming the prize. So um, it, it's, a, it's a real vicious circle uh, as a thylacine sort of investigator. I, I wouldn't call myself a hunter because I don't want to kill one. Um, and I don't really want to trap one because, you know, the, the last thing I want to see is, is an animal in a zoo because history will clearly show us that that wasn't in their best interest. Um, and many, if not most of the zoo specimens mm -hmm. really last very long. Um, so to, to trap one um, and to put one in a zoo again, in my opinion, would, would just create a freak show. Well, let's talk about conservation and, and Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter here, because I came upon a little bit of, uh, I guess, internet news uh, that was some time ago. In fact, it was when Steve died from the stingray attack. There was rumors that he was actually on a Tasmanian tiger or thylacine expedition with his wife in Tasmania. And it looked like it was bandied about as only an internet legend, but it looks like there's actual image uh, from that actual expedition where had you heard anything about Steve Irwin on a thylacine expedition? Yeah, expedition is probably a little bit um, generous. Okay. I think they, they went down there to do an episode for their show um, and there was talk about the thylacine during that but I don't think there was a serious effort made to actually try and track one down. I okay. mean, I get contacted by American... TV companies, um, I, I usually hand them on to somebody else because I'm on the mainland and um, I've got a, a fellow I know down in Tassie who can sort of take them out and show them areas. So I usually mm -hmm. um, send them to him. But um, quite often they come up with this harebrained idea that they've got three days filming and they want to go down to Tasmania and they, they want to find a thylacine. And, and it's just like, you know, dude, you're so far from being able to get remotely close to it with that kind of concept you this is something that needs a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of patience to even get close to seeing or hearing one never alone finding one and, and capturing it or whatever right and now alex is would if given the opportunity let's say that you know neil uh, invited you out on an expedition is that something you jump on oh yeah Oh yeah. I mean, I probably been, I've been on a lot of Bigfoot um, outings and never expected to see one, never did see one, but just the idea of, of seeing where, a, you know, they live, um, just the, the country, you know, you know how it is. You're, you're going to a place where an animal that's a legend has lived so that in itself would would be something i wouldn't expect mm -hmm. probably to see one though no, some no. tracks maybe maybe some tracks because neil has been finding tracks so possibly just being um able to see a trackway and see the the because now i know what you know drawing and and looking so hard at these features like the feet then it's like this, the next step would be to see a track from right. them. Right. Neil, could you make uh, some kind of declaration that uh, if you took somebody out that you could sh show them at least 
uh, habituation site or uh, take them to the right habitat to see some kind of tangible evidence of a thylacine? Um, well, I'm in South Australia on the mainland mm -hmm. and we have literally hundreds and hundreds of sightings here in South Australia. My most recent was last Thursday night. Um, and I've been up to that property and replaced uh, my cameras in a different spot because I think I've narrowed down the small avenue of, of scrub that they're moving through when they come past. So, you know, when we're out, especially in winter, you find plenty of prints in winter for obvious reasons because the ground's nice and moist and it will hold a print better. Um, quite often, if I just follow my nose and my hunches, I, I usually find something when I'm out. I'm, I'm going to say probably maybe one in every five times I go out, I find some sort of clue mm -hmm. that they may have been in the area. Now, that we either present as um, prints on the ground or quite often um, I'll find um, mutilated kangaroos that have um, all the hallmarks of being taken out by a very large predator um, with a feeding style not dissimilar to a thylacine. So. Okay, well, let's show some people uh, an example of what you're talking about here. Let me uh, go back into the desktop here and I'll go to our PowerPoint here and bring up some of these slides here for us all to look at. Okay, so tell us about uh, the track we're looking at, Neil. So this was from winter uh, last year. I think it was June. I was out in a region called the Murray Mallee. So the Murray Mallee is a, is a type of woodland that has very short multi-stem eucalypts. They have a lignotuber at the base. All eucalypts have a lignotuber, which is basically a bulb that stores energy. So if you cut a eucalypt down, it will shoot from that bulb and keep growing. So you can coppice them over and over again and they'll regenerate continuously. So it's this very low, dry uh, limestone sort of country with intermittent sand hills through it. So I was out there in winter last year um, and um, driving up one of these sand hill tracks, just following my nose as I do. And I got to the top of a sand hill there and discovered quite a few prints running around through the sand. Now, these prints, as you can see, they've been rained on, but they're not that old. I'm going to say they're probably only maybe three or four days old at most, um, because there was still a fair amount of detail to be had in them. If you have a look at the toes, you can see the large claw scratches that come out through the toe pads. Now, thylacines don't have retractable claws like a cat. Um, so you nearly always get nice, big, claw drag in the prints you find unless they're walking incredibly slow because they're a digi-grade animal. They run on their toes, unlike a dog, which is a plenty-grade animal. They run on their plantar pad most of their weight distribution. So you get these large toe impressions. And the interesting thing about this print is that it was almost five inches wide and five inches high. Now, this is a front print and um, rather large. Not many dogs will throw a print that big, certainly not a dingo. Um, and if it was a wild dog, it would have to be the size of a Great Dane or a Bull Mastiff to throw a print that big. So you're talking a large animal if it was a canine. These prints were found um, on a sand hill, as I said, but they were found alongside kangaroo prints and they were following the kangaroo prints essentially. So. My guess is that um, this animal was um, hunting kangaroo 
Uh, if you have a look at the print, it's got a very wide gradual arc to display of the toes. It's not in a typical 180 degrees kind of formation like a fox or a dog. Um, and they're very big fat toes. There's a decent sized gap between the toes as well, um, which is an indication that it could be a thylacine as well because thylacines were known not to have any webbing between their toes on the front feet. So when they run, and if it's soft and they need to gain more traction, they can spread their toes out like fingers and dig in and grab a hold. And this is why we get these deep toe pad impressions and those claw scratches going back into the toe pads. Well, and knowing that you have access to thylacines, mummified thylacines, thylacines in museums, you know, their feet must be available, their paws, their pads, their claws, all these things are available on record. So, and this is either or situation. I mean, this can't be a kangaroo. It can't be other things that are running around there. So it's, it's easier to prove, right? Yeah, it's easier to prove to me, but try and prove to a scientist that that's a thylacine <laughs> print without a dead one lying next to the print. Right. <laughs> You've got more chance of winning the they, Are there any uh, examples of behavior of them uh, paralleling kangaroos or hunting in packs? Would you see, are they solo hunters? Would you see more than one track? I think they're generally solo or cooperative when they're hunting. So they don't hunt in a pack and they don't live in a pack per se. They live in a small family group. So they're juveniles that are two to three years old will still be with mum and dad, generally with mum, and they'll stay with mum and learn hunting and cooperative feeding. Mm -hmm. um, dad is historically sometimes witnessed with the juveniles and mum, but generally dad is ahead of mum and he might make a kill and leave that for mum to feed the young as she comes along behind him a few hours later. This is where their sense of smell comes in um, really important with, with finding each other when they're out in the bush. Now, this looks like an incredibly f fresh track, but not knowing what kind of substrate this is and, and knowing that most often substrate can be a little bit difficult to age because oftentimes it will hold itself for more than a season and some you know, clay especially. So what kind of, so tell us more about these tracks and what environment it's in. The same one as you just showed before. These were okay. also sandhill. As you can see, there's a trail bike being through there as well. Um, but um, like I said, these were about three or four days old at the most due to the, the rain damage that had happened to them, but they were still holding a reasonable amount of detail. So it wasn't a real heavy rain. Mm -hmm. But there was no way they were more than a week old. Okay. Now, would you find scat near any of these tracks as well for if you followed I, them? I didn't, but you probably could if you followed mm -hmm. them for long enough. But because of the terrain being very mixed sort of substrates, you have a limestone mm -hmm. base most of the area. Then you'll have lots of salt bush and, um, you know, just a, like a pea gravel with um, lots of leaves and mulch from all the plants. You'll, you'll get track lines that go for so far and then they change substrate and, you know, it's off. Okay, this, so go this ahead. This particular drawing here, I, I love to use as a reference because this was from Queensland in, in uh, Australia on the mainland in the 1800s. Someone drew what they found to be the print of the native tiger of Queensland because, you know, thylacines have been extinct on the mainland for 2000 years. 
Um, but these, this was drawn from a fresh print and it looks remarkably like the prints that I just, that we just saw then. So I love this reference. I actually put this uh, photo of this drawing and those prints up on a Facebook group a while ago and someone accused me of faking prints. Um, I've never even faked an exam at school. So, you know, to, to accuse me of faking prints in a trackway with that much detail without any of my footprints next to those prints is a little bit blasé and, and naive. <laughs> but I was actually quite flattered that I'd done such a good job at faking these prints that they were identical to these ones in the book as a reference. So, yeah, touche. <laughs> okay, now let's talk about some of the distinguishing characteristics of a predator here. This is a kangaroo, kangaroo kill from 2018. And uh, tell us more uh, about this. Okay, so the Adelaide Hills is the southern Mount Lockheed Ranges, which are directly behind Adelaide where I live in South Australia. And um, there are no known large predators in the Adelaide Hills. The only predators we have that we know of are foxes and the odd feral cat. Now, feral cats do get reasonably large, but not large enough to do this sort of damage. Now this animal here was probably about a week old due to the decomposition rate on it and the smell of it. Um, and you can see the first starting to come away. But something's had a mighty big chomp and basically taken the front half of that animal away. Now, this may not be a thylacine kill. This could be a large cat kill. I do have reports now on hand of sadly, large black panther type animals in the Adelaide Hills. Now these sightings are common throughout Eastern Australia and in Western Australia, the Southeast of South Australia, but in recent years, I'm starting to get these sightings in the Adelaide Hills. It makes me a little bit nervous when I'm sleeping in my swag on the ground, um, knowing that there's something that big with that much power running around the hills in the forest. So whatever took the front half of this kangaroo, it was not a fox. That's a large predator. And right. Now you're saying there's reports of large black cats, and that's something in the cryptid world, of course, that we've heard about over the years outside of Australia, uh, even yeah. here in the States. Um, so uh, all the characteristics of a jungle cat, you know, or a panther. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes, though, we, we had a sighting from Queensland last week, last Wednesday, of a large black cat-like animal, right? So a fella who took the sighting went to the spot and investigated it and found some prints in the creek that were large and very thylacine-like. They weren't cat prints per se. They had the big claw drag the whole bit. So that makes me wonder, is there an unknown quadruped marsupial that looks similar to a cat but presents a footprint similar to a thylacine um, mm. roaming the Australian bush? Now, the only contender for that is Thylacoleo carnifex, or the marsupial lion. But again, if you speak to scientists, they'll tell you they've been extinct for 10,000 years. But um, there are hundreds and hundreds of documented records of those animals being seen from Cape York Peninsula in Queensland all the way down the East Coast right through to Western Australia. Okay, let's talk about the diet of a thylacine. Here's a pretty gruesome example of a poor kangaroo, just uh, all sorts of messed up. So talk about the diet. Okay, so there's a little bit of theory and conjecture here, but 
it is known that thylacines were blood feeders and they liked the blood food organs. So um, that's historically documented from hunters in Tasmania from the 1800s. What we tend to find is kangaroos with their heads ripped off and their lungs are missing. Nearly every time the lungs are gone and the heart are ripped out through the throat cavity and gone. Now, when I found this unfortunate chap, um, the head was still attached by a tiny little bit of skin, but it had been really meticulously cracked open in half and the brains are gone. Now, brains are high in protein and fat and they're soluble and easy to digest. So my theory, and this is my theory, is that when we are finding a lot of these headless kangaroos, that thylacines or some other type of marsupial um, predator are coming through, taking their head, targeting the brains, and I believe that's for feeding their young. I think that would be a really high protein, good nutritious meal for young, and they'd probably regurgitate that and feed their young with it. Right, and it's a, uh... Some of the speculation here is that they can open their weak or strong jaw, and I say that in parentheses, very weak or strong, because there seems yeah. to be some kind of stipulation on the fact that they exhibited a weak jaw. It's in the writing, but if this is an example of a weak jaw, I don't want to see a strong one. And as far as the angle itself, it's between 80 degrees and 120 degrees from the research I did. Do we, yeah. do we have any speculation on how big the mouth can get? No, you, it's measured, it's documented at 120 degrees. And if you have a look at the historical videos of Benjamin in the zoo, mm -hmm. um, 36, there's, there's at least one shot where he gives you a nice big yawn and shows you his flip top head. Yeah, let's find that here. I'm gonna go ahead and open up, uh, I've got a, a silo slideshow here as well. Let's, let's bring that up and uh, see if we can bring up that image there of it yawning. There we go. That's yeah. a pretty good example there. Now, really some of the characteristics really, of really the skull in range to, uh, in comparison to a wolf, I keep reading about comparison of the uh, thylacine head to a wolf, but I don't see a lot of attributes just based upon how large that mouth can get. What, if, what are they talking about when the head gets mixed up with a wolf skull? Well, I think it's basically the overall shape. Mm -hmm. It is well noted that the females had a narrower head and the males had a slightly bookier head. Um, so there may be a little bit of variation in the descriptions because of that. Yeah. Now, now here's another kangaroo kill. kill. Is this an example of the lungs being removed? Yes, it is, mate. Yeah. Now, this one was a swamp wallaby that I found about a month ago down in the southeast of South Australia. So about 350 kilometers away from where I live. Wow. Very fresh. That was the morning's kill. That had well, died the yeah, you can see how the blood looks like it's freshly pooled at the bottom yeah, of the corpse. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so that's a swamp wallaby. They're slightly smaller than a western grey kangaroo. Mm -hmm. Um, and a bit more of an easy target, I suppose. But I have found adult male Western Grey kangaroos with their heads and lungs missing. And we're talking about a BC that's you know close to six feet tall and a formidable animal. I mean, a human wouldn't take on an adult male kangaroo because you'd come off second best. So right. anything that's powerful enough to take on an adult male kangaroo, fully grown and tear its head off, 
is something to be admired and respected. Hmm. Now, looking at the rib cage in particular, you should be able to see things like teeth marks upon the ribs. You should be able to find hair uh, of some other species that attacked it. So when you collect a piece like this, which I imagine you collect it, do you bag it and tag it and take it home and, and forensically look for those kind of things? I did that skull that you had up before that had been cracked open. I did take that. Mm -hmm. I bagged it. I froze it immediately. I kept it frozen. Um, I had it in the freezer for about three months before I found somebody who could test it. I took it into them frozen fresh in an ice pack and I thought, we're going to get saliva here. This is going to be the one, you know, we've got the proof. Um, they took swabs from all around it. All they could find was kangaroo DNA, sadly. The saliva didn't seem to um, keep under freezing. Mm -hmm. um, and there was no traces of any other thing there other than that kangaroo's DNA, sadly. So an invisible predator ripped its head off mm -hmm. and didn't leave the DNA behind. So one of your theories too is, Neil, that they're using the soft tissue to feed their young. Are we, are we calling them the young joeys? What are we calling young thylacines? They're joeys. Yeah, so joeys. would this be the male or the female mostly hunting? I think it's, it's, a, it's a mixed bag. I think mm -hmm. when the female has got pouch dependent young, she's probably gonna get um, presented food by the male more. Once the young are large enough to be left in a lair, she can then cooperatively hunt with the male or hunt independently of the male, depending on the situation. Um, but that's always a risk because she has to leave her young at home alone mm -hmm. while she's hunting. So um, I think once they're small enough to be out, of, large enough to be out of the pouch and walk alongside her, she mm -hmm. would probably keep them reasonably close while her and or the, the father, the male, um, hunt. Did you find this uh, kangaroo, Neil? This, this picture one, here? I think this one was from South Australia. I think this is one of the other members in the group that found this one. Okay. But again, um, head gone and um, not looking really healthy as far as uh, getting up and bouncing back goes. Now, do you know anything about the history of this photo? As far as, was it taken at the point where they found it or is this at a different location? No, it was taken where they found it. You gotta appreciate oh. these animals, an adult kangaroo is a rather large beast to take it home and throw it in the freezer for scientific testing is, is not really a practical thing. How, how large is this animal? Do we have any idea? That, would, that animal there would probably be around the 30 to 35 kilo mark if it's a female and fully grown. Okay. I mean, my dog's 25 kilos and she's a smallish. Okay. Do the convert. Can we do a convergence of math here as far as feet and yeah. pounds? <laughs> uh, 25 kilos is roughly 55 pounds, I think, somewhere okay. around there, 50 pounds. So over so five feet tall? Uh, the adult males are up to six feet with mm -hmm. a Western gray. They can get quite large. Mm -hmm. um, and a. And a um, uh, red kangaroo male is even bigger. They're massive. They're a formidable beast when you're standing up alongside of one. Alex, maybe you can speak to this as well. It's a very curious photo out of all of them. 
This one shows an, a lack of evidence of really any blood pooling on the substrate there, which is really odd for the size of this critter. Um, your thoughts on that, Alex? Is that curious to you? Oh, yeah. I, I, you, you'd think, you know, you would see when the kill, and I was raised on a farm, and I saw, you know, my father uh, drain blood out of the rabbits and hang them up in the blood. There was quite a bit of blood. So yeah, they must have been a, a an animal that could lap up the blood as you know as it was doing doing its um you know kill last kill you know grab and just drink that blood you know right from that um but opening. you see that on the substrate start to even there would still be a stain, wouldn't there, Neil? Um, to a degree, you'd expect some. If you have a good look at the hind quarter on this animal, you can see a bit of a graze, and the legs don't look real um, great in their in the way they're laying. So I'm going to have a guess here and say this one was probably a roadkill that was fresh, and opportunistically a predator has come along and thought the head looked pretty tasty, mm -hmm. and the predator may have dragged it off the road. I, I don't actually remember the full story with this photo. I'll be honest with you. Okay. Um, but I have found one. I found a wombat that had the neatest hole in its neck, and there wasn't a drop of blood anywhere. Like there was not a drop of blood anywhere, and it was lying on the side of the road, mm -hmm. had its throat chewed out so incredibly neatly, mm -hmm. um, and there was no blood. I've also got um, reports from farmers with this happening with sheep as well. Sheep being killed taken out and not a drop of blood anywhere totally drained of blood so again this fits in with that thylacine historical feeding pattern of being a blood feeder holes which are also related to thylacine do exactly the same thing they will go in to a chicken coop they'll bite the heads off half a dozen chickens drink all the blood and scarper off and haven't basically eaten the chickens they've just taken the head off and drunk the blood well, that's an amazing shot, but I guess, what's that, Neil? There's the whole vampire thing going on. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, if it's a roadkill, I guess that makes more sense as far as the blood starting to dry out and it wouldn't pool as much if it was, you know, an old kill compared to a fresh kill. Maybe it was dragged to the location, but I would think members of the team probably followed up on that but yeah i'd love to know more about that shot now you have some scat samples here these are from uh, april of 2018 and what makes these uh, curious uh, 2017 sorry mate okay um, the beauty of this was when we found this was um it was steaming it was literally that fresh so i got very excited because it has all the hallmarks of what I understand to be a thylacine scat. It's mm -hmm. the right color, it's the right texture, it's the right size, and there's a very distinct lack of bone in it. Now, if it was a devil scat, I'd expect to see quite a bit of bone in it because devils mm -hmm. eat the entire critter. They don't leave anything behind. Um, they're not fussy. And I'd expect to see a hell of a lot of fur in it. So uh, as you can see by the tape measure there, it's about an inch round, a little bit over an inch round. And I think in total it was about five or six inches long with all the segments. Excuse me, I'm going to sneeze. Bless you. Excuse me. There we go. Um, so I got very excited. We bagged it. I took it home, froze it, 
thought that, you know, this is going to preserve the DNA. Um, spoke to the Adelaide University because they have the Centre for Ancient DNA there and they completed the thylacine genome sequence. So I approached a fellow who's from Tasmania actually, but he's a researcher in Adelaide. He did a public talk and his talk, oddly enough, was about why thylacines and Tasmanian devils became extinct on the mainland. So it was perfect timing for me to approach him and I said to him, um, I've got a scat that I collected from Tasmania that was fresh as a daisy when I found it. Would you be interested in testing it and see if there's any thylacine DNA in there? And when I talked about it to him, he was very skeptical, like a lot of scientists are, and that's fine. And I said, look, this, this scat is, you know, it's a, I'm pretty spot on here, I reckon. I reckon this is the, the winner. Now, uh, you've got to remember, this guy's just spent five years or something doing a paper on why they've become extinct. Um, on the mainland at least. Um, but anyway, he was sort of open to the idea. So I basically got it organized, bagged a section of it up, um, made a time to drop it off to him. He wasn't available, but I dropped it off to him. And then I rang him a few days later and finally got him on the phone after several messages. And he said, oh, I've had a chat to my boss in charge of the lab and uh, we're a bit busy. We can't test that scat. And I was like, why wouldn't you want to test this scat? You know, it could prove everything that we, we all would love to be true. Um, and he really didn't have an explanation. And um, I then discovered through some other inquiry that he hadn't actually even spoken to his boss about it. So there was a, a fair amount of academic resistance to the notion that this may be what I thought it was. Now, when I finally did get a section of this tested, I hadn't stored it correctly because it didn't go back in the freezer because I was told to get that shit out of my freezer, essentially. <laughs> um, I got it tested and when it came back, it came back as 93% wombat. Now, wombats do little uh, grassy Rubik's cubes for a poo. So it clearly wasn't wombat, but whatever um, the animal was, it had eaten wombat before it discharge this scat um, but there was like one percent numbat dna in this scat and that really got my attention so i, I wrote back to the um the, the lab that tested it and i said where's this numbat come into it numbats aren't found in tasmania and that's where this scat came from and so then they wanted to talk to me and they said well come in and we'll have a chat. So I went in and I met the guys from the lab and they're really lovely guys. I, I totally trust their, um, their efficiency with the testing and things like that. They're very genuine. They, they wanted to prove it as much as I wanted to prove it because it was going to mm -hmm. put their lab on the map worldwide if they did. So um, I basically said to them, look, this numbat DNA can't be in there because this is from Tassie. I haven't been near any numbats, but there's numbat DNA in there. Well, they said, well, oddly enough, thylacine DNA and numbat DNA is identical up to about 94%, I think it was. And then they branch off. One becomes thylacine, one becomes numbat. There wasn't enough epi, epidermic, epidermal DNA, I think it's called, um, that is basically the, the moisture that exits the the scat from the animal. There right. wasn't enough of that there left because by this time the scat's five months old or something um, to prove 
unequivocally that it was thylacine scat. All I can say is that if a numbat pushed that out of its um, behind, it's a bloody big numbat. <laughs> and it's geographically challenged to the tune of about three and a half thousand kilometers. Right. And it's walking bow-legged in the outback yeah, right now. As a result. This idea, and I'm going to pose this question to you, Alex, because uh, you've worked in the cryptid uh, scene for longer than I have, that's for sure. And um, this term academic resistance is something that you and I have found time and time again. What do you think it's going to take as far as academia to you know, push the limits a little bit more without fear of retribution? We We have colleagues and friends of ours that have suffered retribution over looking into cryptids. What do you think it would take? Oh, I, you know, they've, all, they've always said uh, it's going to take a body. And, uh, but I don't think so. I think that there's ways to um, collectively, you know, have evidence that, again, what else can it be? You rule out so many things. Uh, academia, I think, tend to um, you know, fear for their careers. And so they just steer clear of it. But I don't think it's going to take a body. I think um, your video um, evidence along with all, all the other evidence of, of tracks and uh, scat, hair, and those types of things could, could prove. Now, I imagine I already know the answer to this for you, Neil, and I kind of know the answer for myself, although probably not as severe as what Neil's gone through. But uh, have you suffered at all, Alex, at the hands of ridicule for looking into this? And what's your general attitude? Well, I pretty much go my own way. And, and however, if somebody wants to kind of laugh or whatever, that's fine. It, doesn't really affect me, but I I'm not I haven't seen um, you know direct evidence of, of like a Bigfoot or a thylacine. I haven't you know been privileged enough to have that, so I'm more respected just because I kind of represent what the cryptids are. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't I I don't get the ridicule that a lot of people do. So I can't, right. I, I guess I'm, I'm lucky, but I, I don't think I care anyway, because people are going to say what they're going to say. So, and that right. wouldn't, that really wouldn't bother me. Yeah, in a way, I mean, Neil, if you could go back in time and your two sightings that you had here, I think you said your last one was in 2014. Um, would, if you could go back in time, is there any part of you that kind of regrets what you saw just based upon the amount of shit that you get? No way. Okay. No, I'm made of tougher stuff than the shit they flick at me. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there we go. I yeah. like that. Uh, look, I've, I remember... I've been accused of so many things by so many people that, you know, I still get upset occasionally when someone just hits a nerve, but generally speaking, mm -hmm. I'm pointed in Teflon and none of their shit sticks. Right. Okay. That's what I like to hear. Um, you know, talking about the scat brought to mind, the woolly mammoth that they're trying to resurrect right now through um, linked chromosome engineering and the DNA. And I, I, I don't know if they have a host in order to implant this engineered woolly mammoth DNA into, but something like this looks like it was proposed. I found an article here by um, the University of South Wales by a professor 
uh, Ard Ardith, I believe it is, Archer. And uh, it looks like this was bandied about in 1999. Do you know anything about that? With the thylacine cloning? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I say. Look, if they gave me half the money they've wasted trying to clone it, I could prove it in six months. It's well, about like that. Okay, there's an open offer right now to uh, you know, <laughs> members. Look, uh, um, you need a host, as we all know. If you're going to try and clone something, uh -huh. you need an animal compatible with that animal. I don't know a lot about DNA cloning, by the way, but I know enough to know that you need a female thylacine to put that embryo in to create a thylacine. Now, if they stick it inside a numbat or a wombat or a dingbat, um, I don't think it really stands much of a chance of being a thylacine. Mm -hmm. A, there's learned behaviours. Um, and, you know, could the host even rear it? You know, would, would, the, would the milk be enough? Would the right kind of nutrients be there to raise the animal um, to a... Um, to a level where it was going to live independently. I, I, I just don't see the cloning exercise mm -hmm. having any real um, validity when there are thousands and thousands of sightings that have not been investigated by science. Um, there's lots of privateers like myself out there that are passionate, that are doing it their, their own way. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's quite competitive as well. You know, we've had our fair share of scrums online and, you know, exchanges of words, what have you. But, um, you know, if they, if, they, if they actually resource some serious uh, investigation, and you know, the last serious investigation was uh, by Stephen Smith in Tasmania. And that started in 79, I think, and was completed in 81. And that was funded by the World Wildlife Fund because they knew extinction was coming up for this species if we couldn't prove it was there. Mm -hmm. So they found a bit of money. And back then, I think it wasn't very much. It was only about $14,000. But in 1980, that was a reasonable amount of dough for a research project. Um, but there has never really been a government-funded proper study into looking for thylacines until mm -hmm. Queensland... Um, James Cook University in Cairns in Queensland announced two years ago that they were going to look for thylacines based on two really good sightings. There are hundreds of sightings as good, if not better, than the sightings they base their, their um, investigation on. So I just laugh at that because it's just, it's academic poppycock, in my opinion. Um, and if they were really serious about looking for it, you know, there's plenty of places in Australia they could be looking for it apart from Tasmania. And, you know, as it is, they're looking for it in Queensland, allegedly. Um, but I don't know of anyone who gets funding to look for extinct species without some sort of evidence. So um, I'd love to know how they got all motivated and decided they were going to go looking for thylacines all of a sudden. Well, if, uh, if you're looking for a way to look for a thylacine that's kind of off the beaten path, one of the tools you could use is with our sponsor here. I want to thank our sponsor, Feral by Aaron, yet again. Now, I've mentioned time time again on the show that Feral by Aaron is our one sponsor, but with a sponsor like this, you don't need any more because the fact is that these spirit tools actually work. And what do they work with? Well, they work with the uh, 
elements of the earth and they're housed and built by an artisan out of the Olympic Peninsula, Aaron Jackson. Check out Feral by Aaron, E-R-Y-N at Etsy.com. Drums, rattles, smudge sticks, and coming soon, alchemy boxes. These are one of a kind, each one one of a kind. We're not talking about a factory here. And as two people told me, her instruments sing, in particular the drums. So check out Feral by Aaron. Give it a like, review, subscribe, share, go on the Instagram, and give a little love. May give it right back to you. Feral by Aaron at Etsy.com. Okay, we're back with Neil Waters and Alex Evans. Neil is with the Thylacine Awareness Group of Australia. And Alex Evans makes beautiful figurines, lifelike figurines, um, incredible detail there. In fact, uh, let me expand the screen here to talk about, um, let's go to this one here. Yeah, there. And let's go back to this. Alex, can you show people uh, the charcoal drawings in the background of you so people can get an idea of your attention to detail when it comes to the anatomy? Yes, I've got um, uh, the, this particular one and this particular one over here, the face, are taken from uh, taxidermy specimens of the thylacine. So they're actually a real, the real, you know, the real creature, whether they made made them slightly different from taxidermy um the real specimen from the, to the taxidermy it's hard to say but this is what they ended up with and i thought that that was a good representation and then put some vegetation in here to show and again you see the 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 clear you know striping and the, and the really long straight tail and then this um particular one over here is um i did uh, off of a, a photograph that was um, mm -hmm. probably from the 1930s of a thylacine. I think you even have a, a, a picture of that one. And so I draw from as much as realism as I can. And, and you know, there's there's interpretation, of course, but I tend to like to draw more like a field sketch type of thing. So yeah, these are um, just a few of the ones that I've done. And they help me when I'm doing a, a figurine, they help me to, to know the anatomy better when I drew, do a drawing first. So I, you know, concentrated on some of the drawings. And, and the nose of the thylacine, that's another thing that, you know, I've, I've drawn a lot of drawings of dogs. Uh, that's one of my uh, mainstays is people send me drawings of their, or pictures, photos of their dog and want a drawing done. And the nose is, is so much different than a dog's nose. And um, these are the types of things that you can really only see from like a taxidermy specimen or a live specimen. So yeah, it was quite, it, it's, it, it really teaches you so much just to draw from the, the taxidermy. I wish we could see them here. I, I'm not sure any of the states has any taxidermy of thylacines. I don't think there's many. I think Washington Museum does. Uh, Oh, the Smithsonian. Wherever they were in trees, they've usually ended up in the local museum, essentially. Mm -hmm. Right. We had um, taxidermist Ken Walker uh, come on the show a couple months ago, and he was, uh, I believe he's the three-time world champion out of Canada. Um, mm. He's an amazing artist and worked, uh, he's also a, a Sasquatch 
a witness and built a, a replica of Sasquatch, which is amazing. But he worked at the Smithsonian. And just to go off of what you were saying, Neil, uh, he was a curator down there in the deep supposed non-existent basement where, you know, hidden bones and animals exist. And he went on to tell me um, in some detail about a uh, ice age bone structure of a bear that was taken from a part of Alaska. And he said that the bones were so fresh, they weren't fossilized. And I can't remember the type of bear that we were talking about. But um, anyway, he verified that indeed the Smithsonian does have rare, um, you know, artifacts beyond just, uh, you know, NASA wreckage and things of that nature. They, they have some unspoken of treasures down in the basement there. And who knows how deep that basement goes. Maybe it looks like something out of the Raiders of the Lost Ark in the last closing credits there when the Ark is sitting in the back. So we can there cross are, our fingers. There are rumors in regards to James Cook University in Cairns up in Queensland where they're looking for thylacine based on sightings. Um, there are rumors that there was some roadkill thylacines taken in there by two different people on two different occasions. Um, in the last, I'd say 10 to 15 years, this apparently happened. Um, and they're doing a survey in that area for the Northern Betong. Now, this Northern Betong survey employed something like 50 or 60 trail cams throughout various parts of the forest up there. Mm -hmm. and I think my guess is, and this is just a guess, and you can take it or leave it, but my guess is with a, with a roadkill thylacine being brought in and a Betong survey going on, I think they might have caught something on camera to back up their little dead flat animal that was handed to them a few years ago. Um, and that's prompted them to go and get some funding to go and look for thylacine. So only speculation and mm -hmm. I'd love one of them to ring me up and tell me I'm an idiot or tell me I'm right, shut up. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think it's quite feasible to, to assume that most museums and universities would have all sorts of little things in there their basements that they don't really want the public to know about because mm -hmm. they don't want to create some sort of a stampede. Now, have you ever been approached, Neil, at all by any member of the parliament or government or even a contractor of any kind that has helped you with information about the actuality of them still existing? No, I have not. Okay. Only witnesses. Nope, only witnesses. Okay. Um, well, in the short time that we have left here, of course, uh, it would behoove me in so many personal ways to ask you this question, but maybe not behoove you so much, Neil, but um, I'll ask it anyway. Uh, Yowie sightings, of course, I have to ask you about Yowie sightings in Australia. This is something else that's not supposed to exist out there, but knowing what I know now about my own backyard, what, what's your impression on Yowie sightings and have you ever looked into it? I've met a couple of witnesses. I don't, I have looked into it, but I've never investigated it. Let's mm -hmm. put it that way. I have some Yowie sightings from South Australia. Mm -hmm. I met a fella in uh, Darwin in the Northern Territory who had some very good first-hand Yowie sightings. Mm -hmm. um, and I found a link on one of the Yowie groups on Facebook that led me to a book called A Trip to the Antipodes by a squatter that was 
um, written in South Australia in the very early stages of the colony. I think it was 1840, 1842. Now, he mentioned how they had found a leg bone, I think, a femur, of a large hominid in Victoria in the 1800s, and it was given to the Melbourne Mechanics Institute. Where's that bone now? What did the Melbourne Mechanic Institute do with that bone? But it was apparently of a a Yowie's bone, mm-hmm. um, and it's some it's somewhere in the coffee. Now um, in South Australia in 1839, a chap by the name of Litchfield, Dr. Litchfield, did a talk at the Adelaide Mechanics Institute, and his talk was about the fauna of South Australia. South Australia was a new colony then; it was only three years old. And lo and behold, he mentions in there about the dog-faced Dasyurus, which is essentially a thylacine, being a member of the fauna of South Australia at the time of settlement. Now, if you ask any scientist nowadays, they'll tell you they've been extinct on the mainland for 2,000 years. In the story, there's no evidence. But there is written documentation from naturalists at the time quite clearly stating that they were part of the fauna of South Australia. Where's the specimens? How did they know this? Someone messaged me a couple of years ago and told me that um, there was two thylacines shot in South Australia in the 1800s sent back to the UK for samples to compare. I have no other documentation of that. It was just something someone told me they'd read somewhere. But the field naturalists in Australia were the very early conservationists that collected lots of this information um, at the time. And it would be interesting to go through their archives and read through their old manuscripts. Um, But yes, I have met some first-hand witnesses of Yowies in South Australia. Mm -hmm. Um, You've got to remember, South Australia has had a large percentage of most of its bushland destroyed for farming. We have very small pockets compared to other parts of Australia of habitat, but there's enough habitat to support certain animals. Um, Yowies are meant to be a mythical beast, but you know there's there's uh, hundreds and hundreds of stories of Yowies being a very very real existing creature in Australia. So nothing would surprise me, um, and I try very hard not to say no. To, to most of these kinds of things, because the minute you set yourself up for failure, mm-hmm. you're likely to be proven wrong. So I try to keep an open mind about most things. Speaking of mythical qualities, is there any Aboriginal legend or oral tradition in Tasmania or Australia about mythical qualities attached to the thylacine? Absolutely. In our documentary that we produced a couple of years ago, Living the Thylacine Green, um, we spoke to the Adnamatna people in South Australia in the Flinders Ranges, and they revere the thylacine as a living part of their culture. Like, they don't talk about animals that become extinct. It's like with people. When people in their, um, their language group pass away, they don't talk about them anymore. So that's part of their spiritual belief. So that spirit can move on and be at rest. Mm-hmm. So they have the same respect for animals. Mm-hmm. Now, we spoke to a lady by the name of Regina McKenzie from the Flinders Ranges in South Australia. And she had several sightings that were really quite recent. 
Um, one was about two weeks before we got up there and had a chat to her. Um, and she'd lost a couple of geese to this bee. Um, so when you have a look at our documentary, you can see quite clearly in there that there's some really strong cultural links to these animals. Um, in Tasmania, they were also uh, very strongly linked in the culture down there and in Northern Territory as well. In fact, I've got an Aboriginal friend up there, uh, Marie, and um, her people from the um, escarpment country in Arnhem Land kept them as companions and pets. Well, it and is right. It is a it is a that, right amazing. Well, she's talking about her grandparents. So it's within the last hundred years they were keeping thylacines as pets, but they've been extinct on the mainland for thousands and thousands of years. You know, <laughs> that's amazing. As far as uh, Alex, you know, uh, well, let me pose this back to Neil. Are you of, of the mind that this is mainly a flesh and blood answer when it comes to the thylacine? You don't add any of the attributes of uh, mythos or supernatural or anything like that to uh, how we can't find them, you know, lack no. of evidence. Well, I don't think there is an, a lack of evidence. I think there's a lack of effort okay. on a governmental level. I think it's more about the effort that hasn't gone into it. And I think it's quite deliberate. Um, and I find physical evidence of physical things that are happening. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we have taxidermies in, in museums to prove that this animal really did exist in recent history. And, you know, the whole um, hogwash about it being extinct on the mainland for thousands of years doesn't wear with me because there's too many recent sightings. Some of those sightings are so impeccable that you can't find fault with them. They're independent of each other. They have the same attributes to the sightings people describe the same things often over and over again mm -hmm. some people are tourists and have never even heard of the animal and describe it to a team so to me that level of detail in the information warrants further investigation but sadly without some sort of dead animal to cut up science just doesn't want to be involved because it's too risky the ego of scientists leaves the ego of musicians in the weeds. These people are really quite proud of their opinions mm -hmm. and they don't like taking risks. So, um, you know, they're, they're, like, like you said earlier on, you know, there's a certain amount of um, funding that keeps those egos ticking over and being mm -hmm. published and peer reviewed. And that's more important to them than what they're actually investigating half the time. It's, you know, quite often it's not so much what's being said, mm -hmm. but who's saying it that makes it important. Mm -hmm. Alex, do you have any words of wisdom for people that are interested in looking into cryptids such as the thylacine or the Yowie or any other cryptid? What do you say to the person that is toying with the idea but is afraid to maybe step out and actually do it just as fear of ridicule? Well, that, you know, that's a, it's always a touchy subject because you know, people, as long as people care what others think of them, mm -hmm. you're going to, you're going to get that. But uh, I'd say just um, do what your heart tells you to do. If you want to get out there and investigate, investigate. I'm more of a um, investigative type person who likes to look for the reality part. Um, mm -hmm. I don't, um, you know, 
harbor any bad feelings for anybody who sees that there are some things going on that are a little unusual. And But I think the main thing is just document everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, try not to draw conclusions and you know, write down what you see. I have, I've had some very strange experiences out in the field, mm-hmm. but I just, I, I don't make conclusions of them. I just document what happened, what I heard, what I felt, what was going on and then go from there. But if it, it just getting out and, and hearing um, the sounds of nature, whatever they are, if you have an experience, great. But I, I just say, just enjoy doing what what it is and and try not to anticipate you're going to have an experience because you probably won't but you can just be out there enjoy nature and learn uh, about tracking about other things that kind of parlays into into any research right right you know and doing a show like this it's sometimes it's hard to get someone to come on even anonymously and speak about their fringy passion. I've had at least a couple in the last week that haven't called me back or say they're going to think about it. just, it's just too much, you know, even with anonymity, the fact is their voice could be recognizable and there's, right. you know, blowback from that. They're, you know, incredible interviews that uh, I may never ever get. And that's just kind of the way it goes. But uh, my drawings, uh, Bigfoot drawings from from sightings from Florida all the way to Canada mm-hmm. that I've talked to people. Many do not want to be associated with the drawing. They don't mind me showing the drawing, but mm-hmm. they don't want me to talk about even sometimes what happened uh, during the encounter. Mm-hmm. So uh, I and I have uh, you know strict rules on if someone talks to me, they can give me permission, but if they don't it stays with me. So I have a lot of stories as you do, where I, I, I might show the drawing and ge- give a general idea of where it was um, seen, mm-hmm. but I don't talk about it because they don't want me to. And I respect that and I, underst- you know, I understand it. Now I have to ask you too, real quick, Alex, on the drawings there, are those for sale as well on the Etsy shop? Uh, no, not, not so far. We could okay. make them available or um, people can contact me if they, if they, you know, want these, I, I did these kind of for my, myself, mm-hmm. but there's no reason why I can't, um, make prints of them for anybody. No, who would want. Those would be beautifully, uh, in a frame. And so if people want to get in touch with Alex, I will put the link for the Etsy shop there and you can reach out to her. Alex Evans also on Facebook. Um, you can reach out to her that way and friend her or send her a message in regards to those prints. Cause they're they're absolutely stunning, and they they belong uh, in other people's homes and lives. Um, well, thank guys, you. I appreciate everybody's time here. Alex, Neil, thank you very much. Uh, if you'd like to get in either one of them, you can reach out to Neil Waters, of course, at the Thylacine Awareness Group of Australia. And as I said, Alex is going to be um, on her Etsy shop and on Facebook. Any last closing words? Yeah, if I could just get a quick plug in for our doco. Yes. Um, we, we've, we've produced DVDs, um, you know, for the traditionalists like myself who like a, a physical thing to own and examine and hold and, and uh, having your collection. So our DVD of our documentary is available through our Etsy shop. 
but we've recently put it online as well for people who are a bit more techno savvy than myself. Um, so it can be viewed on Vimeo and you can download it and rent it or you can download it and own it online from Vimeo. So if you go to Vimeo, type in Thylacine Awareness Group of Australia, you should be able to find it without too much trouble at all. And Vimeo is so streamlined that you can do it on your phone. And I think it's, you know, generally you can just enter in your uh, debit card or prepaid card so they don't have it. And then you can order anything you want that's on there just uh, as quick as lightning. Watch it on your smart uh, phone. Watch it on your device uh, on home. I think uh, Vimeo is on pretty much on every search engine available. So you can uh, definitely check that out. I've watched movies and docs before on Vimeo, thinking about releasing one myself on there. And the platform is made for people that have uh, documentaries that they want to show that maybe not every production company uh, is going to do. But, um, you know, as far as what you're doing, Neil, I would think that you would be approached uh, fairly soon regarding filming a documentary and putting it on the history channel or something like that. And yet uh, that, that hasn't happened yet. Is that right? I've been approached mm -hmm. um, by probably half a dozen different um, TV production companies that right. wanted footage, but mm -hmm. sadly they mm -hmm. don't, which doesn't really bother me because we've made our own documentary anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, but sadly, they don't really want to meet me and come out in the field and do all that sort of stuff because right. I'm not in Tasmania. And we're still getting over this whole uh, myth that thylacines are only found in Tasmania. So um, when we prove it in Tassie, I suppose, then we might have a bit more credibility to uh, prove it on the mainland, I suppose. Um, but yeah, they, they only ever want to use our footage and pay us 100 bucks for the privilege. So most of them get told to go away in a hurry <laughs> <laughs> right now i've been approached with these uh crews that want to spend three days or 72 hours and they want to get a sizzle reel going and they don't really have a clue about the subject matter they've they wikipedia on the way in and they're looking for personalities more than they are looking for substance exactly and, it's uh, about the host of the show uh -huh. <laughs> right right yeah well, I'm a bit dry and sober for some of that stuff, mate. They like drama, and I'm not that dramatic. Do you guys have any uh, appearances or any meetings coming up at all in Australia that people c can look in, you know, look up and be look forward to? Uh, no, not at the moment. But we do do a meet and greet every now and then. We've done about four or five of those. We have mm -hmm. actually screened our doco in a few theaters um, in South Australia and Western Australia. Mm -hmm. Again, it's so expensive as a privateer to go into a popular theatre and use their gear and have a have an event there that you're paying money hand over fist. And if you if you don't get the money back, then it's it's not necessarily wasted money, but you know it's not an infinite resource. Sadly, mm -hmm. um, we can't just print our own. So mm -hmm. um, we don't have any events at the moment. But if they join the group, they come onto Facebook and they're interested. Um, there's a bit of a push for me to go down to Tasmania and do another meet and greet down there at the moment from some of the members in the group. Um, but again, it's time, it's, it's regional locations. Ideally, I'd like to go on the road with the documentary and sort of self-fund myself by selling tickets to view it and do public talks in all of these regional areas around Australia where the animals have been seen. 
Um, but again, it's just time and money uh, that you know I don't quite have all the time. But things are looking a little bit better at the moment for having a bit more freer time to do some of these things. So mm -hmm. if they join the Facebook group and there's something coming up, they'll know all about it. Well, again, this is Neil Waters of the Thylacine Awareness Group of Australia. Alex Evans, uh, cryptid artist. And if you like what we talked about here, you can catch prior episodes and future episodes, kind of the same area, uh, just off the normal news, a little fringy. And uh, we're, and according to this subject, trying not to make it so fringy. And we just want to bring awareness in general on Strange Brow Radio to topics that uh, generally aren't spoken of in the main part of the bar and are sectioned off into the area nooks and and corners of the pub. So we're trying to bring it to the main floor, the main stage. You can find us at Podbean or iTunes. It's under Strange Brow, B-R-A-U, radio. And there are indeed some future events that you can look at, strangebrow.com, ticketed events, live events that we're doing. And we look forward to meeting our new overseas audience. Thank you very much, Neil and Alex. Neil Waters and Alex Evans to be exact and very much thank you it's the wee hours of the morning for Neil a lot of different interviews happen besides that one including a live event that we did at 657 East Main Street in Cottage Grove Oregon at the Axum Fiddle Pub where every second Saturday of the month you can catch us live and have some good fun good food and a good time Unfortunately, the audio dropped off halfway through our talk. <laughs> it was a logistics nightmare. But I do want to make an announcement. We have had audio problems before doing our live feed. So we dropped some cash on some better equipment, which was really the only thing we could do. And instead of talking to a video engineer, we talked to a legit audio engineer. And so for that, we are grateful and look forward to crystal clear audio. So, we uh, hope that you like the show that we do each and every month. But after next month, we hope you love the show. It's always free and it's a, it's a great time. I'll have some more announcements about that as well. Up this week, dropping a second episode. Not just doing one every Monday. There will be one coming now between, hmm, I guess today would be St. Patty's Day, the day after technically. And let's just look down the road here sometime on uh, closer to the 20th of April. We'll drop the second one interviewing witness Barb Shoup and talking about the Primal People Convention out of Enumclaw, Washington. We'll tell you more about that. And we've got some information about ticket sales going on you can check out ticket sales at strangebrow.com b-r-a-u.com william becker the psychic psychic sasquatch secrets of the sasquatch coming up as well so strangebrow.com and our sponsor feral by Aaron see you in the trees